I'm Tracy McCauley. And I'm Liz Zuleika. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScript, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Enjoy the episode. Today on CardioScripts, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Ashley Shank. Dr. Shank received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Pharmacy, and she went on to complete a PGY-1 pharmacy residency at St. Joseph East in Lexington, followed by a PGY-2 cardiology pharmacy residency at UK Healthcare. She currently serves as a cardiology clinical pharmacist at UK Healthcare and as an adjunct professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. And we're excited to get to talk to her a little bit today about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So Ashley, thanks for coming on. Well, thanks, Liz. Today, we're going to be talking about the Explorer HCM trial presented at ESC Congress 2020 in late August. The purpose of this trial was to assess the efficacy and safety of mavacanthin in patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Mavacanthin is a small molecule and selective allosteric inhibitor of cardiac myosin, ATPase, and it acts to reduce actin-myosin cross-bridge formation. And so this was a phase three multi-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled parallel group trial that randomized patients in a one-to-one ratio to receive mavacanthin or placebo for 30 weeks. Mavacampton was started at a dose of 5 milligrams by mouth daily and could be titrated up to 15 milligrams by mouth daily. Patients were included if they were at least 18 years of age, were diagnosed with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, had a peak left ventricular outflow tract of at least 50 millimeters of mercury at rest after a valsalva maneuver or exercise. They also had to have a left ventricular ejection fraction of at least 55% and exhibit New York Heart Association class two or three symptoms. They also had to be able to perform upright cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Patients were excluded if they had a history of syncope or sustained VTAC with exercise within six months, they had a QT interval corrected for more than 500 milliseconds, paroxysmal or intermittent AFib on on their screening EKG, or if they had persistent or permanent AFib not on anticoagulation for four weeks or more, or not adequately rate controlled within six months before screening. Patients were allowed to continue background therapy of beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, but not disapiramide. There were 251 patients who were randomly assigned to Mavicampton or placebo. The mean age was 58.5 years, 54%, and 65% of patients in in the Mavicampton and placebo groups respectively were male, about 90% were white, and of the 90 patients who received genetic testing for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the Mavicampton group, 31% had the pathogenic or likely pathogenic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy gene variant. Of the 100 patients tested in the placebo group, 22% had the pathogenic or likely pathogenic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy gene variant. About 14% of patients had AFib, and about 20, 28% of family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. About 75% of patients were on a beta blocker at baseline, and 20% and 13% were on a calcium channel blocker at baseline in the Mavicampton and placebo groups, respectively. Also, about 22% of patients had an ICD. 
mean heart rate was around 63 beats per minute, and mean blood pressure was systolic of 128 over diastolic of 75 millimeters of mercury. Uh, about 73% were NYHA class 2, and about 27% class 3. PVO2 was 18.9 milliliters per kilogram per minute and 19.9 in the Mavicampton and placebo groups, respectively. The mean EF was 74%. Left ventricular outflow tract at rest was about 52 millimeters of mercury. The primary outcome was a composite of a PVO2 increase of 1.5 milliliters per kilogram per minute or greater and at least one NYHA class reduction or three milliliters per kilogram per minute or greater PVO2 improvement and no worsening of NYHA class. And they found a statistically significant benefit with Mavicampton when looking at the primary outcome. And so it occurred 37% versus 17% in the Mavicampton and placebo groups, respectively. They also found statistically significant benefits in both of the components of the composite endpoint. They also looked at post-exercise left ventricular outflow tract, and they found it decreased by a mean of 47 millimeters of mercury in the Mavicampton group and 10 millimeters of mercury in the placebo group. And this was also a statistically significant benefit. About 65% in the Mavicampton group and 31% in the placebo group had an improvement of at least one NYHA class at week 30. With regards to safety, there were 11 serious adverse events reported by 10 patients on Mavicampton and 20 events uh, reported by 11 patients on the placebo. So that is an overview of the Explorer HCM trial. And so Ashley, I think maybe even before diving into the trial, could you take a moment to kind of talk about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and maybe even more specifically obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? What does that mean? And what do these patients look like? Well, that's a great question to start out with. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in general is just by definition, the left ventricular wall thickening that's not explained by any other causes. So it's actually a diagnosis of exclusion. And so it's most commonly in over 50% of cases, actually a genetic cause. So there's usually a, a sarcomere protein gene mutation uh, that causes a lot of these cases. So that explains a lot of the genetic testing that was done in the Explorer HCM trial, but it can also be from other things like different metabolic disorders or neuromuscular diseases, different malformation syndromes like Noonan syndrome, other infiltrative diseases can also mimic it. So if you think of amyloidosis and those plaques that can deposit in the myocardium that can cause thickening in different areas, other endocrine disorders, mostly in infancy, and it's typically transient, anabolic steroids, even uh, tacrolimus and hydroxychloroquine, one of our uh, hot topic drugs with COVID can actually cause left ventricular hypertrophy, but typically not to the extent that we see in more of those genetic cases that can progress to actually cause more severe hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And so by definition, and what they use in this study is that having a left ventricular outflow tract obstruction is typically defined by those exercise or post-exercise gradients. So as that septal wall thickens, you start to get, you can detect a change in flow from inside the left ventricle out beyond into the beginning of the aorta. The technical definition is a LVOT gradient of at least 30 millimeters of mercury at, at a peak level. 
Um, but the threshold that you typically see recommended for consideration for removing that obstruction is when that peak is at least 50 millimeters of mercury or, or greater. So that's where we start to think about uh, surgical myomectomy, actually surgically removing that obstruction, alcohol septal ablation, um, and really just trying to minimize symptoms because we believe that as a, that gradient gets higher, that the patients are more likely to be symptomatic because the blood really has to have a lot of force to get beyond that obstruction to get to the rest of the body and deliver oxygen. The, the other question I have before we really dive into Explorer is what therapy have we had available for patients leading up to this trial? And then if you could touch on how Mavicampton kind of fits into this story. Whether it's great or not, usually we've just been trying to manage those symptoms and focus on reducing the gradient, um, which is generally developed by the contractility, the force that the ventricle is trying to use to pump against that obstruction. And so things like beta blockers, uh, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers, really trying to reduce that inotropic effect, as well as, as medications like disapyramide. So really, really old antiarrhythmic drug that um, you don't really see around much anymore other than in this setting. And so it's actually such a strong negative inotropic agent that it actually is in the guidelines for consideration, especially when patients have atrial fibrillation associated with their hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. It sounds like up to this point, we've really been focusing on, on symptomatic management. What's different about Mavicampton though? So Mavicampton really gets down to that underlying pathophysiology um, and actually affecting the connections between the, the myosin and actin fibers that can actually just decrease force. And so the thought is that if you're able to decrease that over time, that you're going to slow down that um, malformation or that hypertrophic process that just makes that septum thicker and continues to contribute to patient symptoms. So I guess after going through that, I mean, what were your initial thoughts when reading through the trial? My first thoughts were that this was really exciting because we, other than the symptom management, there really haven't been any medications that have really been shown to have any clinical benefit. So the authors mentioned that there's been other agents in the past. So things that you might see as renolazine, spironolactone, valsartan, uh, even losartan really haven't been shown to decrease, you know, fibrosis, the hypertrophic process. So this is really the first one that even though it's not exactly those definitive heart outcomes that we look for, like uh, morbidity and mortality, that it's still something that's really been associated with outcomes and symptom management that may downstream have significant effects on these patients. And so they did a, a subgroup analysis and they, they looked at outcomes in patients who were on beta blockers versus those who were not on beta blockers. And in that subgroup analysis, they found a, a more of an impact with Mavicampton in patients who were not on beta blockers compared to those who were on beta blockers. So I think that brings up just an interesting question in terms of Mavicampton. Is this something that we should be using in the setting of already started on a stable beta blocker dose? Uh, is this something that could be considered as monotherapy? Do we even know? So as far as with the beta blockade difference, so an important thing to note with that peak VO2 assessment, 
that heart rate and peak heart rate during that exercise activity is really important in that calculation. So for patients on heart rate lowering therapy, such as beta blockers, uh, potentially calcium channel blockers, though there were less patients in the study on calcium channel blockers, that um, that seemed to be what drove that part. And so when they compared other aspects, so like the LVOT gradient or even patient reported symptoms, that those aspects still improved despite being beta blocker therapy or not. They didn't include patients who were also on disopyramide. What are your thoughts about that? And how do we go about managing patients who are already on disopyramide? Um, I think for, for the disopyramide component is that it, it is a medication that does have a lot of um, side effects in addition to the negative inotropic agents. And so whether or not it's still safe to be used on those patients remains to be seen. And um, I think they wanted to start out in, the, in patients who maybe can't tolerate that therapy or really might be um, one of the add-on or more of a gold standard you know, guideline recommend therapy for this disease state. So not to say that it won't necessarily be added on in the future for really symptomatic patients, but it is balancing the, the patient symptoms and whether they need more of an, an invasive strategy. But um, my hope is that this could be added a lot earlier. We might be able to avoid some of these additional therapies. So another question I have is your thoughts on the adverse effect profile. So from this study at least and the information that we have that it at least seemed more optimal, um, especially for serious adverse events. So uh, there's about half of the serious adverse events in the Mavicampton group compared to the placebo group. Most things seem to be what would be in line just with the disease state of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the things like atrial fibrillation, syncope, or even I wonder if the contusion or forearm fracture even falls in that someone maybe had a syncopal event and fell and injured themselves. But one thing, one thing that I thought was interesting, or at least that they highlighted was the stress cardiomyopathy component. And so however that was actually categorized, that that may just be from the drug itself and, and monitoring that reduced ejection fraction just from a, an inotropic effect. But overall, like comparing between the two, it actually seemed pretty well tolerated um, and that there was no serious uh, events like sudden cardiac death, which there was one in the placebo group, which is part of the disease state as well. So ventricular arrhythmias, these patients are definitely at risk for. It it looks promising. I'm interested though to see uh, the MAVA LCT results. So that's the the five-year follow-up from this. And I think that'll give us a lot of good information from an ejection fraction standpoint. Um, How safe is it for these patients to be on this med long-term? So excited to see those results. After reading Explore HCM, does this change your approach to managing a patient with obstructive cardiomyopathy? Let's pretend that it had FDA approval and is available. Yeah, with this agent, really because it's brand new and really seems to get down to the source or the really the cause outside of genetic therapy or something that's really going to affect um, abnormal protein generation, that this is something that really seems well tolerated um, and may be able to just avoid all the, the negative side effects from you know excessive rate control agents or even disopyramide really out of the options that we have. And if, it, if long-term can help uh, avoid more of those invasive therapies, which hopefully we'll see with this longer term follow-up. So 
those myomectomies or alcohol septal ablations that are definitely high risk surgeries that, um, or procedures that aren't available everywhere just because the expertise needed, that this really may be a huge game changer in the setting of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So Ashley, any final thoughts, any takeaways, any clinical pearls um, our audience should walk away with after uh, hearing and learning about the Explorer HCM trial? So I think it's a really exciting novel therapy. I think it's still a little early in the game to see how this is going to really fit into clinical practice. And there are some other studies out there that we're still waiting more information on, whether it's long-term safety data or even the ongoing trials in patients who don't have obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it still remains to be seen, but looking hopeful for the future. Awesome. Well, on behalf of Tracy and I, Ashley, we'd like to thank you for taking time and joining us on CardioScripts. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.